You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to a very special episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 291. Hey everybody, we are excited for this show. I mean, I feel like I'm excited for every show and I feel like I say that part too. But this week, we're doing our kind of quarterly thing that we do called Beyond Board Games. Yeah, um, and last time you were fanboying and this time I was kind we kind of both were. Yeah, I think we both were on this one. (laughs) I really love this because it's a way that we at the Family Gamers can dovetail our board game interests with some of our other interests and hopefully bring some other people in on it as well. So it's just a blast. And tell all you folks about some other stuff outside of board games that we find interesting. And maybe you will too. Yeah. So anyway, we are the Family Gamers. As always, I'm your host, Andrew. And I am joined by my lovely and wonderful wife, Nitra. That's me. And so this week on the show on Beyond Board Games, we are featuring someone that I have followed for a long time, but not (laughs) quite to the level at which you are following him now, I guess. I don't know. We are interviewing Kirk Hamilton. Kirk Hamilton was a writer for Kotaku, but now he does a podcast called Strong Songs. And some other podcasts, too, that we find out about as we interview him. (laughs) Which I have now been listening to, and it's great. Yeah. So look forward to that in the second half of the show. But first... Do you have a fact? Of course I have a fact. I have two facts. What? I know, I know. Inflation. (laughs) Fact inflation. (laughs) Fact inflation. Please don't say that because then I'm going to have to come up with two facts every week. And sometimes it's hard enough to come up with one fact. (laughs) So we're just going to go with two facts because I was feeling very magnanimous this week. The first fact is about the 291. Do you know what the 291 is? Since you put a the in the front of it, I'm thinking it's a highway? No, if we're on the West Coast, that's how you would say yeah, it. Yeah. No. That's what the makes me 291 it. is the commonly known name for an internationally famous art gallery that was located in Midtown Manhattan at 291 Fifth Avenue in New York City from 1905 to 1917. Wow. It was only around for 12 years, but it's got this kind of like legendary cachet. The gallery is recognized for two achievements. First, its exhibitions helped bring art photography to the same stature in America as painting and sculpture. Okay, yep, yep. And that's about the right time span for that. Yep. Pioneering artistic photographers such as Stieglitz, who's the guy who opened the gallery, Alfred Stieglitz. Also, Edward Steichen, Alvin Langdon, Coburn, Gertrude Kaisbeer, and Clarence White all gained critical recognition through exhibitions at 291. Equally important, Steiglitz used this space to introduce to the United States some of the most avant-garde European artists of the time, including Henri Matisse, Mm, mm -hmm. Auguste Rodin, Mm -hmm. Henri Rousseau, Paul Cezanne, Pablo Picasso, Constantine Bracus, who's, I'm certain I screwed that one up, and the Dadaists Francis Pequeba and Marcel Duchamp. The the Dadaists, yeah. Yes. Listen, there was a lot of difficult words in there. I did the best I could. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Everybody out there who knows more than I do, who has more culture than me, you can all critique me, and you're probably right. But that's only my first fact about our episode number 291. 
the other one, because I do like records, like that's a thing that I've been looking up as part of this thing. Just this year, professional power lifter Tamara Walcott made history at the Rogue Record Breakers exhibition on March 6th. So like two months ago. Okay. She lifted, this is crazy, deadlift, 291 kilograms. That's a lot. That's 641 pounds. That's that's a lot. I don't even know if I could deadlift 291 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not like a power lifter, so right, you know, right, whatever. Right, but still. but uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like that was pretty impressive. That happened in March of this year. That's nuts. Wow. And those are my two facts about the episode number 291. As usual, we also have a message from our sponsor, we First do. Move Financial. Did you know the best time to start planning for your holiday spending may be right now? We did suggest this back in February, but if you didn't start then, start planning now. Especially if you just got a tax refund. One common budget killer is, quote, one-time expenses that creep up on us even though we should know they're coming. An easy way to make sure your bank account isn't crying next January is to look at how much you spent on holidays last year. Maybe that also includes... Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthdays. Divide that by eight or maybe six at this point and start putting that money aside as part of your regular budget. As a bonus, when all those mid-year sales start popping up, you've already got money set aside for buying gifts. To schedule a time to talk to First Move about other ways to take control of your finances, head over to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to set up an initial 15-minute call. Thanks again to First Move Financial for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. All right. Well, as always, this part of the show is what we've been playing. I think we're going to talk about one game, one game that we've been playing lately. How's that sound? One for you, one for me. Sure, I can do one. You're going to do two, aren't you? I'll try to just do one. Go, go first, and then you can do another one after. Well, so we pulled out Mountains Out of Mole Hills, which is in our review queue. Mm-hmm. And started working through that. It's a really neat concept. Your moles are running around in programmed patterns on the bottom of the board. Okay. And they're pushing up mole hills on the top of the board. The neatest thing I noticed is you get points for mole hills that you quote unquote control by having the bottom piece in the hill. But the person who has the most top pieces on the board gets to go first each round. Okay. So, like, that's a nice balance there. However, playing it with two players was not great. The board is really small, and it's really easy to end up with cards that leave you stuck in a corner because okay. of the, the way the programmed action works. Okay. So, I'm looking forward to playing it on the bigger board with three or four players and see if we can fix some of those problems. Okay. Sure. Sure. I had actually heard that this game has problems at two players, so that might just be kind of something that we will remind you about during the review. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> but we'll definitely be uh, you know, doing it a couple times just to make sure it's not just a one-time yeah. kind of thing or something like yeah. that. All right. Well, my one game, this is a game that's not on a review queue. This is a game that I pulled off the shelf of shame today. Okay. Yeah. And that is Gizmos from Phil Walker-Harding. This is a, a really fun engine builder that is kind of uh, marble driven I guess so marbles these different colored marbles represent your energy and so it's an engine builder where you are trying to draft these cards to build these gizmos into your tableau I guess and all the gizmos have one of like six different kinds of effects and you stack them up and so as you get more gizmos and stack them on whatever effect they're on 
when you execute that effect during a turn, you get all the things that all those gizmos do. So that's kind of how the engine works. But the point is that you need to get these marbles for energy and then use the energy to buy the gizmos either off the central board or you know, that you filed away. You've basically filed the designs of them Mm, away, mm -hmm. and then when you pay for them, you build them. And that's pretty much the game. It's actually really, really straightforward. You got to get through the rules. So like, there's like a four-page rule book. Okay. You know, one one thing, double-sided kind of deal. So it's really not that bad. There's a lot of symbology, but there's kind of a, a quick, you know, reference sheet for that. So it's pretty easy to figure it out. It's not a super deep game. This is... Uh, I think it says 14 plus in the box, but I'm guessing that's just because of the marbles. It's probably because of the marbles. So, I mean, this is a game that I think our seven-year-old would struggle with, but our 11-year-old had zero problem with it at all. Sure. So, um, yeah, so that's Gizmo. So it was a lot of fun, and I won. Also fun. Yep. I mean, I like winning. I don't do it a lot, especially when I play games with you, and I didn't play this one with you. It's probably why I won. All right. I made a deal with you. You only have one more. Okay. Okay. So the other one I want to talk about is technically an unpublished game. But we got a copy from Jeff Johnston last week oh, at okay. PAX sure. East. <laughs> okay. uh, so it's called Campfire Smokeout. You played this with me. I, I did. You did. That's true. I, I didn't write it down. I also played it at PAX East with a bunch of friends. Mm-hmm. It is a silly little 18 card game where you are pushing the campfire smoke away from yourself and towards other people. It's you kind know, before of like it like gets potato. in your hair and it smells and, yeah, exactly. you know, and you try to go to bed and then your pillow smells. It's just a big mess. Yeah. yeah. Nobody and, likes that. And the idea is kind of like hot potato that it's just like, nope, I'm not taking it. Nope, I'm not taking it. And if the smoke lands on you and you have no cards left to push it away from you, you lose that round. The game goes until somebody has lost three times and then the person who has lost the least wins. This game reminded me a little bit of, um, what was that Bellwether Games, Tinker Toy War, or whatever that game was called? Wind Up War. Wind Up War, yeah. Like, because that a game bit, has yeah. a lot of that, like, punch left, punch right. It just, I mean, you're yeah. not, it's not violent like that, but it, it reminded me of that kind of go around in a circle. I can see thing. that. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, and it felt very different playing it with three people than earlier when I had played it with five, because mm-hmm. a bunch of the cards are like, move it three spaces, which with three people means you're sending it back to yeah. yourself. Yeah, it definitely Whoops. is not good at three. Uh, it's also like a lot of the cards are like move it one to the left or two to the right and you're like awesome that doesn't help that's like still those are the, same the same person. person yeah yeah so it definitely is the kind of game that i think would scale a little bit better at, at higher player counts like two is unplayable and three is probably three is like worst. the bare minimum yeah. yeah it's not good though but it was a fun little game and I do also like that there is specifically a little brother rule. <laughs> okay. Like, don't gang up on one person. Aw. When somebody gets three smokeouts, if they are the only person who's been smoked out the entire game, they win. Oh. <laughs> okay. So there's, you know, sure. like, wait a minute. No, I don't want to give you the third one because then you're wow, actually going to win I mean, I game. didn't even know about that, but uh, okay. Yeah. That tracks. I get, yeah. I get it. It makes it a little bit friendlier. Sure. Sure. I understand. So, so yeah. I really liked it. I really hope that Jeff is able to find a real home for it. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely going to be carrying around our little 18-card wallet of it (laughs) in the future. All right. Hey, sure. Why not? So that's it. I limited it. You did? I promised. You're a real MVP. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And that's going to be actually it for the first half of the show. We are going to have a snap review for a very, very cute game called Peek a Mouse. Yeah, you should just go watch the video instead of just listening Mm -hmm. to our snap review. Yeah, probably. But, you know, if you're driving, don't watch a video. Yeah. I don't want you to break any laws or, you know, get hurt or anything. Anyway, you're going to love this interview. I really, really think so. We'll be right back. Thank you.
This is a snap review for Pika Mouse. And each have you ever played one of those games where you look at a picture for like 30 or 60 seconds and then you hide the picture and then you have to try to remember all the things that are in it? Uh, yeah. Well, they're fun, but the problem is that, you know, you do them once and then you know all the stuff and there's really not much to do with those things anymore. But what if you could always recreate this experience with a randomly generated set of items? With Pika Mouse from Gigamic, you work together with up to five friends, so six people total, to peek into the mice's house and see what kinds of tchotchkes they've stolen from us humans. But it's okay, they're just designing their house. It's all cast It's offs. very cute. Yes. yes. Pika Mouse is designed for kids ages five to nine, but adults can play it too and really enjoy it. That's right. A game lasts 15 to 20 minutes. So, Anitra, let's talk about the art in Pika Mouse. I love the mouse house. It's so cute. There's a ton of detail on the inside and on the outside, too. You have to put the house together the first time you play, which takes a little while. But after that, it is a really quick open and flip to get everything set up. There are sturdy double-sided wooden tokens that go inside the house and game mats with cardboard tokens for the challenges. So, Anitra, let's talk about how you set up and play Pika Mouse. Sure. Once you've put everything together the first time, set up is a breeze. You pull off the game sleeve, pick up the top of the house, take the interior of the house out, <laughs> remove the pieces, and put it back flipped over. Put the inside part of the box back on top, and you've got a mouse house. Pick a question board based on the difficulty you want and set up the board with a few cardboard question tokens. These are your goals. Take the wooden tokens that correspond with that difficulty. You can tell which ones are which by those rings on the tokens. Drop the tokens into the top of the mouse house and give the box a few stirs <laughs> to mix it up. When everyone is ready, put the flashlight in the hole in the top of the house and hit the 30 second timer button. Now quick, everyone looks through the windows of the house and tries their best to commit to memory what tokens are where and which side of each token is up. Don't forget to look in other windows and move around and talk to one another to help you remember. When the light goes out, time is up. Now it's time to test your memory with the question board. Answer questions on the board like, was the button in the bathroom? Or which side of each token was face up? Your team, which is everyone, gets points for every correct answer. Answer four questions per round for four rounds. A perfect score is 16 points. So, Andrew, let's talk about what we expected from Pika Mouse. Well, I mean, when we first saw this, we were already impressed by the cuteness, and we loved the way that everything fit together. But I was expecting a fairly simple cooperative game for kids. The box is five to nine for the age. Based on the look of it, I thought memory was going to play a big role, maybe some early reading skills, something like that. But as we unpeeled the onion that is the Pika Mouse box, we found some things that surprised us. Well, our expectations were right, but they barely scratched the surface with this game. The mouse house is so cleverly designed, but so are these question mats. They ask questions without using any language at all. All the symbols tie very clearly to both the house and the items. And you can mark yes or no with these tokens that have a check mark or an X. The industrial design on this game is just incredible. We've talked about it a few times already. Everything is so smartly designed to make it just work for kids. Yes. 
the window drapes, and really everything on the inside of the box matches with the color of the floors, so you know how you're supposed to orient the house on top. How cool is that? It's so smart. There's also a mark on the outside of the house. You can match up the vines and the ladder. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. The box size is a little big, but for what this game is, I'd rather have this big box than something where you have to take it apart and set it back up again every time. Having the house pre-built makes this a game that kids can pull out and play by themselves. And that's a huge win for every parent out there. It's only because everything is so great that I even noticed one thing that bugged me. And that is that you still need the book or you need to remember what color tokens correspond to what difficulty levels. You have a mat for every difficulty level. Just show the colors on the mat. I was also really surprised at just how hard the game can get. <laughs> that hardest difficulty level is really challenging unless you have several players who are good at observing. But more than three players, or maybe four, one for each side, you start to get in each other's way when you're looking through the window. <laughs> yeah, it, the box is only so big. Right. So do we recommend Pika Mouse? It's a wholesome family game with kids and adults both able to play together to try to win. Pika Mouse is perfect for this setting. It doesn't require deep rules understanding. It doesn't require reading. Truly anyone could play. You could play younger than five as long as they have the patience for it. We do recommend it. We're going to give it four and a half household items out of five. And that's Pika Mouse in a snap. And we're back. We are here with Kirk Hamilton. Uh, so we discovered Kirk Hamilton because he runs the podcast Strong Songs. Pause. You discovered Kirk Hamilton uh, because he fine. runs the podcast. <laughs> well, that's why we have him I, on the show. I have been a longtime Kotaku reader, and I discovered uh, Kirk okay. a very long time ago. And you, the first time you ever played Strong Songs for me was when Kirk was the Mario broke episode. down yeah. the mm. Mario 1-1 theme. And I was like, wait a minute, why do I know that name? And yeah, so we've been a huge fan, Kirk, of yours and, and the show um, really ever since then, I guess. That makes me very happy to hear. Hello. Hello to both of you. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. That I love to hear that because, you know, I wrote about video games for a long time. And it was this thing where I, you know, before I wrote about video games for the most of my life, I was a musician and a music teacher and was very serious about it, but then kind of started writing for Kotaku. And I felt like I had this secret identity where, you know, I'd be like, yeah, you know, I play some music and I'd talk a little bit about music, but I never really got into it to the degree that I'd like to, given that I'm like, you know, a very serious musician. So it's cool when people kind of discover the music show and then realize like, hey, wait a minute, isn't that the guy who like wrote the tips pose for Persona 5 like six years ago that I read? Um, so now it's the other way around, like, oh, your secret identity is, you know, video game Closet video right, game right. I love it. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, now my main identity, I would say, is the music thing and the secret identity is the video game thing once again. <laughs> So we mentioned Strong Songs. The way I would describe this to the uninitiated is a podcast where Kirk analyzes music every two weeks. What yeah. makes a song great? Is it the thump, pop, and sizzle of the drum <laughs> roof? Um, is it power chords or lush sevenths and ninths? Um, is it amazing vocals? Is it all of the above? Is it other things entirely? And every two weeks you use music theory to break down songs that people have heard before and help us understand why they're great. Yeah, I think that's a safe a safe analysis. It's always fun to hear my catchphrases thrown back at me. Yeah, I guess I describe it as sort of helping people hear more when they listen to music. I do talk about music theory, but I think sometimes there's like an 
like too much of a focus on music theory among people who teach music, especially on YouTube and in podcasts, because, you know, oh, well, I can tell you why this song is good using music theory, which that is often true, right? Like the lush seventh chords of, a, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, of an ABBA song will explain why it sounds so lush, even though a lot of times you can kind of point out why it sounds cool. And you can tell someone, yeah, that's a major seven sharp 11 chord. And that is like, that's cool information to have. But I do hear from a lot of people who listen who are like, you know, I don't know half of that stuff when you start going into chord names and music theory, (laughs) but I still learn, you know, something from each episode. So I'm kind of going for that too, to find that middle ground and, uh, and like welcome in people who maybe played a little bit of music or don't even play an instrument at all and just want to hear a little bit more when they listen to their favorite songs. Well, and I think you're definitely there because I am a closet musician uh, and I took some music theory in college but Andrew over here is just like yeah I played saxophone for a while and I like by the way special place in my heart special place in my heart mine too of course (laughs) Um, but the fact that we both can enjoy your show and both feel like we're learning something like a lot of it Andrew will say kind of goes over his head. I definitely, there is, there is a level of like, those are all terms that I have heard before. (laughs) Right. Um, But I think we both get a lot out of it. Something that I've gotten out of listening to your podcast is learning to appreciate songs that either I previously would never listen to. Like when you did Macedon's Blood and Thunder. I don't like heavy metal. <laughs> I still don't like heavy metal, but now I have a better appreciation of the things that go together. Oh, they're actually real musicians. I never said that. <laughs> I know they're real musicians. I just don't like that style. But also songs that I thought were really cheesy, like Dancing Queen and September mm-hmm. and being like, oh, no, there was a lot of thought put into this they're song. They're legit. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I've had the same experience making the show. Like, that's really great to hear just because it kind of mirrors the experience that I've had a lot of times going and listening to these songs and then really learning them and just over and over again. I mean, every time I learn a song for the show, I sit down with it. I have a whole process where I learn it on the piano and I just kind of go through the harmony and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what would be cool to talk about? And as I do that, there's always five or six things on just about any, you know, any great song at least where I'm like, whoa, like I had no idea they were doing this. This, Look at this harmonic trick they're doing. Oh, look at the way they get into the bridge. This is so clever. Like things that even, you know, I can hear a lot when I listen to a song, but I don't always pick it up until I really sit down and work it out. So it's cool hearing, whenever I hear that people have the experience of, you know, September's a great example, going into an episode where September plays, and maybe you only thought of it as like this kind of cheesy, you know, repetitive song that people are always, you know, dancing to on the internet, but really getting into what Earth, Wind & Fire is doing on that track. I mean, that is a killer track. The groove on that is out of control. Yeah, I, I think especially as this whole pandemic content creator thing has really exploded over the last <laughs> two and a half, three years, like one thing that I think is really, really cool is the internet absolutely latches on to people who just have a level of expertise in something that a lot of us interact with in some way, but we don't have a deep level of knowledge with. And music is something that every everybody listens yeah. to. Yes. I mean, that, that music might be a thousand years old, but everybody <laughs> listens to music. And to listen to strong songs, and especially the fact that you cover so many different genres and just talk about a lot of the hard music theory that's behind literally anything, it's so 
so interesting because you have such a real level of expertise. You're not just like making a bunch of junk up as you go along and being like, <laughs> hey, that sounds neat. Hey, everybody, you should listen to it. Like, you really know what you're talking about. And it is absolutely fascinating to listen to. That's super cool to hear. It's funny, you know, I I try to leave myself a little bit of room to be wrong also. Like, I don't, <laughs> I know, I mean, I went to school and I learned the music theory stuff, but at the same time, you know, I learned jazz theory because I was a jazz performance major in school. And jazz theory is a little bit more uh, is utilitarian, the word. It's a little bit more practical. Like, yeah, you need to learn how a 251 works and how an alter dominant chord works. But really, it just needs to be to the point where you can play over a chord progression. You can solo over a tune and make it sound good. And so often you're kind of going outside of the chord progression or breaking the rules and learning how to do that, that... I don't know. I'll watch a like music theory YouTube video from some of the big names out there, and they they know a lot more than I do. I'll I'll see some guy explaining like really complex stuff that's really rooted in you know old traditional European harmony, and I'm like, mm. I guess I probably took a class on that in school, but I don't remember. <laughs> so I try to actually leave myself space when I'm making the show. Like I I don't know if you'll notice this. There there are times where I'll just say, well, I think this is you know there's a second guitar part here, but it might be a cello. Anyway. It kind of sounds like this to me. Like I try to keep it at just me listening and what do I hear and what's the best I can come up with. And I do research and, you know, I don't like I try not to get personnel wrong and um, historical information wrong. But in terms of the actual music that's going on, I try to leave a little bit of room for ambiguity just because I think that's kind of human. And that's that's a cool way to listen to music like it. The Internet can actually go too far in that expertise direction where people are like, it's only means something if you map the entire thing out and like understand the whole genome of this song. And that actually misses the point a lot of the time of like what makes the music great in the first place, because the people who are making it weren't even thinking of it, you know, on right. that deep of a level. Right. I, and I think, you know, I mean, you, you kind of touched on something interesting there, which is like. One of the things that that we love about strong songs is how intensely relatable it is. Like when you're listening to when you are listening to something that you're playing for us as the listeners of you know the the greater show. Like when you when you laugh while listening to something, <laughs> it makes me laugh when I'm and I don't laugh when I listen to music, but like I'm enjoying you enjoying it, and it makes it so relatable and so fun to listen to the whole thing. That's cool. That's the thing I really want to share with the show is some of my friends from music school, I mean, the greatest experiences of music school were just sitting around with other people my age, mostly dudes. It was a jazz program. It was mostly guys. <laughs> and we would sit around and we would just freak out, you know, to music. And because all of us were serious about jazz, we all had been listening to different stuff. I was introduced to so many amazing musicians. Just any given night, you could be sitting around with your friends. They'd be like, check this out. And they'd put on like a Michelle Camillo big band record. And I'd never even heard Michelle Camillo. And he'd be playing all this, you know, salsa stuff on piano. And it would be unbelievable. And we'd be sitting there all just freaking out together, you know, everyone <laughs> laughing and losing their mind over how incredible the band sounds. And that, you know, it's it, at this point, it's just built into how I listen to music. And I know that it was, I was lucky to get to listen to music in that way. And I do want to kind of capture some of that. I mean, it's it's hard to capture it when it's just me you know like trying to imagine an audience and listen to the music but the music makes it easier I suppose I always am listening to it when I'm reacting to it and that is like I try to just have a fresh reaction like you know when I, if I'm laughing at something or just reacting to how ridiculous something is because I know that is a cool thing to be able to share you know to genuinely share in that even though it's this like asynchronous podcast listening experience it's not actually sitting in a room with someone well, I think it makes it very genuine, which which is I hope you know, so. Is is great. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so.
So, Kirk, you've mentioned that you went to school for a jazz performance major. Yes. How early did you know that you wanted to do music professionally? That, so professionally, it's funny. You know, I knew I wanted to major in music. Professionally, loosely, because I know a lot of musicians do other things, too, because for most people, music doesn't pay the bills. Right. No, it's true. And that's actually, well, that's a whole other conversation, right, is how... To make the decision to be serious about music, at least in America, also means that you're probably making the decision to pursue it, like to making a livelihood from playing music, which isn't necessarily the best thing in the world. Um, You know, having both like, well, having done a whole variety of like making music just or making a living just playing music, making a living from something completely other than music, now making a living from a couple different things. It's uh, I don't know which one is best. But anyways, that's kind of a separate conversation. Uh, Your question is, when did I know that I wanted to be serious? Serious about music, yeah, maybe. Seriously pursue music. Yeah, I I knew I wanted to major in music, and to me, that's what that meant. Like that was as serious as you could be about music. Was you're going to go to college and ma- major in this thing? Because <laughs> you know, I I knew I was going to go to college. I was I was lucky in that way. My sister had already gone to college, and I was like, well, what am I going to major in? And um, that happened. I'd say my junior year of high school, when I went to the Berkeley College of Music um, summer program for five weeks out in Boston. Which is a pretty hardcore program, and uh, yeah. you know, it was you basically stay at Berkeley and study with all these amazing players. It was my first interaction with the world of East Coast high school jazz, which is on a pretty <laughs> high level. So there were some players out there who just knocked me out, like who were way better, way way better than I was. And it just made me be like, okay, this world, this is a whole exciting world that I want to be a part of. But I was really into jazz before that. It was really my sophomore year of high school where it super clicked, and I realized like, okay, I'm. I'm pretty good at this, I think, and I love doing it, and I just like want to do it as much as possible. And that hadn't quite translated to I want to major in music, I want to be a musician, but the 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 seeds were there by freshman sophomore year. That's really neat for me to hear because I'm somebody who took a different path where I made a distinct decision to not be quote unquote serious about music, hmm. even though I love music. Um, and I ended up going to a technical school that allowed me an opportunity to still do music as part of my studies without that's being great, like, though. that's the direction I'm going to go with my life. You know, I'm so. glad she chose that school because that's where I met her. So. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's, that is one of those things where, like, right, any decision yeah, like that I is going to lead gl- you. Also glad for that. <laughs> yes. No, it's interesting, though, because I've thought sometimes about music school as a kind of a technical school. When I got out of school and was I was lived in San Francisco for a while and was just in this house with a bunch of roommates and we're all kind of broke 20-somethings. And I was the only musician there. And it was interesting to me talking to my roommates, many of whom had just sort of majored in something in college and just kind of gotten, you know, majored in English literature or whatever. Um, Not to knock English majors. That's a great major. Um, Really interesting. More that you kind of come out of school with this just general knowledge. My partner Emily will say that you go to her dad actually would say you go to school and you get a certificate of teachability when you when you graduate. And that's really what it proves, right, is that you can learn. And they were kind. a lot of people were struggling with their direction in life. And they're like, well, I don't really know what to do for my job. I'm kind of just working this crappy job. I don't like I don't know what I want my career to be where I was like I totally know what I want to do because I almost felt like I had gone to technical school University of Miami that's where I went um, in Florida the jazz program there is almost like a technical school like everything is structured like a microcosm of a music scene so you have to like let's say you're in an ensemble and you can't make rehearsal you have to call a sub so when you're young you'll get called the sub 
in the older bands, which is something that actually will happen in a music scene in the real world. And subbing is often how you get a gig. And the same thing is true there. You have to learn doubling and like work in the studio. And they structure the whole thing like a simulation of being a professional musician to the point where when I graduated. Oh, sure. I was totally ready to just go be a professional saxophonist, which I then did for for a while. That's really and, cool. Yeah. And it was cool. And it was actually, it was very technical. As much as it was like an art school, it really felt kind of like a technical degree. That's really, really neat. All right. The the nerd in me is bubbling up. You know, I mean, obviously we're talking about music and there's, there's a lot of reasons why. But I have to ask, how did you end up at Kotaku? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That was like definitely the well. I don't want to say that it the was long the long and winding road. It was a long, a long and winding road. It was a really weird career left turn, and I suppose that could happen again. I feel like I'm on a more understandable path at this point, but that was sort of unexpected. I so I was teaching. Um, so I was in San Francisco. I was directing a jazz band at a high school, and um, teaching private lessons and gigging and sort of doing the thing. The jazz saxophonist thing. This was in the sort of mid 2000s. And then in 2007, I got an Xbox 360. Um, I had stopped playing video games for most of the early 2000s. I was like, I don't have time for this. I got to focus on, you know, I wanted to learn guitar. I wanted to like learn how to sing songs and have a rock band. This is all stuff that I didn't learn how to do in school. So I was like, I got to get serious. This is a lot of stuff to learn. Sold my gaming PC and just focused on music. But then in 2007, I had, you know, enough work going on, enough stuff going on. I had a band. I had like learned how to sing. I was learning all these instruments. I was like, okay, let's get back into video games. So I got an Xbox 360. I think I, I played uh, GTA San Andreas, which wasn't even a 360 <laughs> game, and um, Oblivion, The Elder Scrolls Oblivion, which had just come mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. But then it was fall of 2007. So this was when Mass Effect came out. This is when Bioshock came out. This is when Portal came out, like the Orange oh. Box, um, oh. the first Modern Warfare. It was this crazy run of yes. like six months. And I had gotten this console right before that. So I'm sitting here playing these games like, holy cow, in the six years since I stopped playing these things, video games would be become amazing like they're really bioshock was just so cool i Uh just playing through a story like that was really incredible so i you know i just kind of was playing them and engaging with them and thinking about them and realizing how exciting they were and i discovered this sort of blogosphere we call they call it the brainy sphere now it was a group (laughs) of bloggers uh michael abbott um was a, a wonderful man who wrote a gaming blog mitch kirpata lee alexander some people who are still around um but it's a bunch of blogs from people writing these big nerdy academic kind of essays about video games with lots of you know analysis and feelings and sort of like a, a different type of criticism than I was used to reading. And uh, it was really exciting. And I thought, well, I could do this. I could write a blog about video (laughs) games. So I started kind of writing on my little blog about video games. And I'd sort of send them, you know, I'd send links to, to people that I admired or bloggers I was reading. And then it just kind of, it was such a small scene and it wasn't that hard to break into. Like, I, I kind of got to know people. I was in San Francisco, which was lucky. So I could go to the Game Developers Conference and actually meet people in person mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of network and be like, hey, I'm this like, oh, yeah. I'm really excited about video games. Like, I want to talk about them. I want to talk to you. I read your thing about this thing. So, you know, I kind of got to know people. And then pretty soon I wrote, I was writing a little gaming blog with some friends. I wrote a piece that was about, it was about Mass Effect, the game series, only it was Mass Affect. And it was like this really hackneyed humor post about a hipster role-playing game and like mass affect and so it's like all the members of your party there's steve the guy with the car there's i don't remember it was it was terrible um but i published it and 
I sent it to Lee Alexander, who is a was a, at the time a really well known blogger. Now she works mm-hmm. in game development, and she like tweeted it out or something. I didn't even know her. Anyways, guy from Kotaku, Brian Crescenti, who was the editor, saw it, and he wrote me and asked to like republish it, which was something Kotaku did at the time, is they would just republish bloggers. So um, they don't pay you or anything. You just get to have your you know your blog post on Kotaku and a bunch of people read yeah. it. So they republished that, and then it just kind of led to me emailing with him, and then with Stephen Totillo, who at the time was deputy editor. Yep. Pretty quickly, you know, I kind of got to know a guy at Pace. Then I was writing for Pace, and it just sort of cycled up from there. And pretty soon, um, Joel Johnson, who was running Kotaku. Was like, hey, do you want a job? Do you want to come be an editor? And I was like, I mean, this pays a lot more than teaching jazz. So, yeah, <laughs> like, sure, I'll do it. Um, and then the next 10 years of my life, I sort of spent uh, being a, a video game uh, critic and editor. Wow. Yeah. And people like me were like, oh, he's so cool. And there were people like me on the other side. I don't know if you know that or not. but <laughs> No, no, I'm not that cool. I'm just uh, just sitting here like writing writing opinions about video games. I, listen, being able to put food on the table, writing opinions about video games is a pretty special thing. But. It is, no, and I've never taken it for granted. It's funny. It, it was not, it was like a, an interestingly, it wasn't like a straightforward path. It just sort of, mm-hmm worked out like I happened to be in the right place and I, I mean I do think that I was was pretty good at it like I was writing about games and thinking like okay this is fun I can kind of channel a lot of the way that I think about music into the way that I think about games I think that being mm-hmm. a teacher really helped me write about games just because sure. especially teaching music you spend so much time describing these complex systems in terms that young students can understand and be like, well, this is why the band is arranged this way. This is why this rhythm works that mm-hmm. way. And there's a lot of that, I think, in doing criticism, or at least in, in writing criticism the way that I always did. So that always felt like kind of a leg up or a way in that I could sort of think of it in this certain way that helped my writing stand apart. And yeah, it was it was an unexpected thing. It still feels kind of wild. Just knowing so many people read Kotaku, you know, (laughs) like writing things that these abstract, huge numbers of people would read, even though I was just sitting alone in my like crappy apartment in San Francisco, you know, (laughs) banging out eight articles a day, being kind of lonely and stressed. (laughs) All right. Well, let's bring this kind of back, I guess, to Strong Songs. Um, Sure. So uh, obviously it wasn't like an immediate transition from Kotaku into Strong Songs or anything like that. Uh, There was time in between where you were kind of doing your thing. But what was the spark that made you say like, I'm going to do a podcast about this and and talk about all this stuff and break this stuff apart? It was a mix of things. I knew I wanted to leave Kotaku. I mean, I... You know, the longer you do a job like that, where it's really fun and exciting, but also really takes over your life. I mean, writing for Kotaku is more than full time. It's really life devouring because you're writing all the time. It's very high stress. It's also exciting. You're working with all these kind of fun people to talk to. So you're always online in chat talking to people. And then you're, I was playing so many video games, like right, so many to, video games. You have to um, sink in a ton of time playing the games. Yeah, I mean. And then organize your thoughts and write about them. And, right. Yeah. So just nonstop. Very, very life consuming and I was not practicing music I wasn't writing any music and I'm sitting here with all these ideas you know I never finished a second album under my own name I have all the stuff I want to write and I never and I hadn't finished any of it so four or five years into writing for Kotaku it was just increasing this feeling of like 
okay, well, at some point I've got to leave this job because I'm not going to be a video game critic for the entire rest of my life. Like, this is a detour, but this is not going to become the main event. So I always knew I wanted to leave. I did a podcast for Kotaku called Split Screen with, at the time, with Jason Schreier, who I still make a podcast with now. We make Triple Click with Matty Myers. At the time, it was just me and Jason. And at the end of that show, I would do a thing called Kirk's Music Picks, which I think I would, I started doing it at the beginning of the show. (laughs) Which is just funny. Someone, imagine someone tuning into a video game podcast and it's like, hey, what's up? We're Kirk and Jason. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you all about this Cranberries song that I love. <laughs> and being like, what is this? So we moved it to the end of the episodes. And then it just started getting longer and longer. And I would kind of get a little more in-depth. I'd like be like, so there's this one thing the guitar does that's really cool. Wait, check it out. And I edited all the episodes. So I'd be like working in my voice and kind of like adding the music around. I was like, this is really fun Like to, to slow it down and like repeat the thing and show it to people. So I was doing these kind of longer segments. And then I think Jason said to me, you should do, he's like, I would love you to do Toto's Africa and explain why that song is so good. We're kind of talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, that would be kind of fun. So then I was getting ready to leave Kotaku. I was like, Univision had bought us some new company that now owns them, who's just awful, was going to buy us. I was like, this is not going to last. Like, this, it's time to leave. And I decided, well, you know, I'll like, maybe I'll take Kirk's music pick and I'll turn it into a slightly longer thing and I'll do something about why I think Toto's Africa is a great song. Because I had these specific thoughts. Like, there's like three things about that song that I think are special. So I went and recorded what wound up being the first episode of Strong Songs and just put it on SoundCloud, I think. And just sort of tweeted it out and was like, hey, what do you think? Like, should I make this a show? And I kind of already knew, okay, I think I think this is good. I think I'm going to make this into a show. But people were into it. And then um, I kind of just immediately started making episodes of the show. And that was right as I was leaving Kotaku. So for a minute, I was still freelance doing split screen. So that was my only income because I hadn't even started a Patreon for Strong Songs yet. I was just sort of growing it and seeing how it went. But it grew pretty quick and it got a couple of really nice shout outs kind of early on, a couple of people shared it, um, which was really nice and kind of helped people discover it. And then it just spread through word of mouth. And I kind of launched a Patreon midway through that year. And now it's like one of my main sources of income and one of the main things that I work on most weeks. So it was a kind of gradual shift, but at the same time, you know, only only a year or so between not doing it at all and having it be my main thing. Well, that's pretty awesome. I mean, wow. we are we are patrons of Strong Songs, so oh, that, we, and I I we, really appreciate believe, it. That's awesome. We believe in what you're doing. Yes, because it very is, much. It's, it is it is worth far more than the meager pittance that we we. <laughs> but that's the amazing thing, right? Is that if enough people just throw in a little bit, then it lets me just you know be comfortable making the show, and also like not I don't have to worry about ads. You know, I've never had to read an ad on a podcast because Triple Click <laughs> is also listener supported. It's mm-hmm. Great. That is a great thing. Like, I feel really lucky about that, especially as the podcast industry keeps getting bigger and more, you know, kind of corporate, corporatized Mm -hmm. and ad money just becomes this whole thing. I mean, God, it's very stressful to think about having to do that. (laughs) Well, we we do have a, a sponsor, but they're amazing. And uh, so it's not super stressful for us, but I completely understand where you're coming <laughs> from. You're like, no, not all sponsors are bad. No, sure. And I mean, any way you can make it work, right? Like I know plenty of people who make it work all kinds of ways, though I, I do personally really enjoy not having to worry about that stuff just because, especially for me, I mean, Strong Songs is totally a one-man show. I, there's nobody helping me. I mean, mm-hmm. my partner Emily will listen back to episodes and give me some notes, but that's about as far <laughs> as it goes. Um, so I just don't have time to even, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. manage that kind of thing. So it's right. really nice to just sure. be like, you know what, make the show. These are the people who are going to pay for it, and then they're all going to listen to it. And if they don't like it, they can uh, they can stop paying for it, and that's fine too. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's nice and clean. Yeah. 
So this is a two-part question. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite song currently? Because I'm sure it changes. Oh, boy. And what's your favorite song teardown that you've done on the show? Okay, let me think. I can't list my favorite song. That's that is <laughs> That's impossible. It's like asking us what our favorite board game is. It's virtually impossible. It's just not possible. It's very like of I, the moment, I know. I, you know, here's a, there's a song I've been listening to recently called "Letter from Home" um, by Pat Metheny that he plays with Pat Metheny Group, and it's an amazing melody. I'll say that. It's just like. I try to avoid the word perfect now because I think perfect, like a perfect melody. Um, I think I use that word when talking about God Only Knows, which speaking of my favorite songs, that song is incredible. The Beach Boys, God Only Knows. And you can describe a song as perfect if it's a certain type of composition. If it's like very intricate and very minimalist and very tidy and the melody does exactly what you want it to do and it's so logical. And like, that's not actually perfect. That's all those other words I just used, right? Like, yeah. Because, you know, I don't know, Nina Simone doing Cinder Man. That's also perfect. It's just that's a live recording. It's a lot looser. The energy is just totally different. So anyways, I I try to avoid the word perfect. But this Pat Metheny tune, Letter from Home, it's just it does exactly what I want it to do at every moment. And at times it does things that I didn't know I wanted it to do. And like I could just listen to it endlessly. They perform it. They just play the melody and then they play the melody again. That's it. There's like no big improvised solos or anything. (laughs) And it's so immaculate it's so wonderful that i've been thinking about it a lot i want to i'm going to talk about pat metheny at some point on the show and it might be that song uh there's a few it might be but anyways that (laughs) that one is up there for me right now and then let me think in terms of favorite breakdown that i've done god only knows was a good one i again i can't list a single one sorry um but uh, god only knows was great just because that was one of those songs that I've I've always heard. I've listened to Pet Sounds plenty of times. I know everyone, you know, there's always music dudes who are like, oh, Pet Sounds, oh, it's the greatest album ever. <laughs> like, you just have, you hear that so much. And I mean, I heard that before I'd even really gotten into the Beach Boys or listened to it. And then I listened to the song and was like, yeah, this is a really nice song. And then I sat at the piano and I started learning it. And it was just like, oh, like by the time I was going through the bridge, it was really, I was freaking out at the piano at just how amazing that song is and how just the the chord progression, the way that he wrote that melody is just amazing. So the process of making that episode was really fun. And then I think um, I think the episode on fingertips, the They Might Be Giants episode, that one's probably fun to listen to. That was a huge yes, pain to make. We had a lot of fun I with can only I, imagine, yes. but we enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, I, that's, I'm glad to hear it because um, I think that would be a fun one to listen to just because it's so nonstop because this is this, for anyone who doesn't know, this is They Might Be Giants collection of micro songs, 23, I think. Yeah. Um, 21 we checked maybe. the other day and the longest one is a minute yeah which that's fairly long considering really some long. of them are the rest, just the rest know. of them are like five to 20 seconds right it's it's so cool it's such a it was such a fun way to talk about they might be giants since i, I generally just pick one song for each artist and i was like well for they might be giants i mean what are you gonna do <laughs> so that was fun and it was a like i said a huge pain to make it took so much work that was when i was like i need to stop putting so much work in every episode or i'm gonna burn out but um but I do, I do think that one was fun, and it was just a unique challenge, and uh, it's such a cool collection of songs. Well, we have been They Might Be Giants fans, I feel like, our whole lives, at least I'm, since college and, I, and yeah, before same. that. I, for me, school, it was since whatever. I was, like, 13. But yeah, same. Since I was a kid and I heard Flood, I was like, well, yeah, I love this exactly. band. This is yeah. my stuff yeah. right here. Yeah. 
But I don't think it was until, because we listened to Strong Songs as a family, all five of us. Our seven-year-old will now prance around the house saying, you know, fingertips, fingertips. (laughs) And it's pretty much your fault. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry or you're welcome. (laughs) Um, You know, both. He already enjoyed They Might Be Giants as well. But I hadn't played a lot of Apollo 18 for my kids until we listened to that episode. And now um, kind of feels like nothing but. Yeah. So Mm, it's it's all right. Well, there's there's always the later albums that you can get them into. Yeah. Well, like they, we picked up like here come the one two threes, here come the ABCs, oh, but, like, okay, they didn't, sure. and here come science, but they yeah, didn't yeah. put two and two together, you know. Right? Oh, this is are... the same band. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, have you ever gone to see them live? Oh yes, our favorite, my favorite show was uh, was them and Jonathan Colton and Jonathan Colton. Oh sure. Yeah. I was like, I almost said Weird Al, but I was like, no, no. it wasn't Weird Al. It was no, them and, and Jonathan Colton. Mm-hmm. That was a great show. Yeah, I'll bet. Show. Yeah, I've only seen them once, but it was so much fun. I just, it was just They're a great so show weird. and such a good live band. They have such a yeah. tight I, band. I, I want to say, I, I think I've seen them once in like every season of my life. So I saw them <laughs> once in high school and once in college. Nice. And mm-hmm. once when we were young married and once as a parent. And like every time... It's not just that, you know, they're older and, and they're playing different songs, but I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm coming at it from a different place. Oh, yeah, it, to- it hits yeah. you differently. You know, sure, no matter, sure. No what's that's really cool. Yeah, that's a very much a band for that kind of evolution. <laughs> yeah. Where do you see strong songs in five years? That's a good question. I've thought about that. I want to change it up somehow, but I also don't, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I want to change it, and I also don't want to change it. <laughs> well, you have because, a great formula. I mean, Right, it's a good formula, and it could sustain the show forever, um, theoretically, because I, I have a list of five billion songs that I want to focus on. <laughs> and Nobody's going to stop any... making music because right, of you, Kirk. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but at the same time, like, I think that there will come a point where I can't just keep doing the same thing. Like, as much as there are a million songs I could talk about, I do sometimes feel lately, like in this last year, I'm like, okay, well, I've explained a lot of things that I know about music, and I can explain them in new ways because every song just necessitates a new explanation. But a lot of times it's the same concepts. Oh, this, like, they impose, you know, a 12 8 time signature over the 4 4 in this one as well. Oh, this is kind of a swing thing, even though the bass is playing straight. It's like I've, I'm increasingly finding, I'm like, oh, I've kind of talked about this before. I've talked about this before, which is cool because it feels like I'm kind of building a body of work and I can refer back to past work and it, you know, it feels like a whole big curriculum, but also it makes me think I should learn new things. Like I should, I should branch out. Like I should, I don't know, embrace becoming a, a student again in a way that I think might be cool to share with listeners. So I'm thinking about how to do that. There are so many styles of music from around the world that I'm very mm-hmm. ignorant about. I was just learning about tango because a very good friend of mine um, here in Portland, amazing tango musician and like has played in all these tango bands. And then he knows all these like Argentinian tango musicians. And I was like, well, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? To sit down with him and then to meet these musicians and then to turn that into an episode somehow and like explain tango at the same time as I'm kind of learning about tango. So I think something like that would be cool. That's a lot more labor intensive. I don't know what it would look like, but just something that brings in other styles of music kind of expands the global scope of the show somewhat um, while not going too far away from the things that people like, which I think is like, do another 80s pop song and tell us why it's cool, which like <laughs> there will always be room for that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. Because well, it's fun say- and yeah. Yeah, well, I will say this, like, I mean, you say, like, hey, I've talked about this before, hey, I've talked about this before, but now when I listen to Strong Songs, and, I mean, Anitra laughs at me because she knows more about music than I do anyway, I'll listen to something, and you'll kind of allude to what you're going to talk about, 
and then you'll play the music and then I'll look at Anitra and I'll be like, okay, this is what I heard and then this and then this and then and it's all because of what you've taught me. And oh, so man. then when you say it, it becomes like internally validating that I'm actually learning something by listening to the show. That's cool. Well, that's actually nice to hear. That makes sense, I suppose, that as you listen, your own relationship with hearing the same ideas changes mm-hmm. so it kind of Absolutely. hits you differently. Yeah. And then the other thing is I'd love to do something live. I mean, I really like, it's been Really awesome making the show, especially during COVID, which has just been such a nightmare in so many ways. Having this <laughs> consistent thing that's a consistent income source that I can make safely by myself has been like amazing. Like really um has really has really been a great thing for me. But like making music is about getting with other people and sitting yes. in a room together and like yes. making music together. And I really would love to incorporate that into the show, which, I, you know, is going to mean some sort of a live performance, maybe probably not a tour, but like doing some sort of live thing where there's an audience with a band there. Man, there's so many different. I have so many ideas for how I can incorporate musicians, writing new arrangements and covers of songs that I've already covered, performing them live, taking them apart, showing how they work. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff there that feels a little pie in the sky at the moment since I'm very in the routine of like, well, it's Tuesday, so I'm going to be spending all afternoon sitting at my <laughs> microphone talking about music theory. But um, this other world where I'm like out in the world and interacting with musicians and also like talking with more people about more styles of music, that's kind of the direction I see it going just to keep it fresh and exciting for me. And I think for, for listeners too. Sure. Well, so we've alluded a little bit to our, our musical background. Like I played saxophone and that's it. Nothing else. That's fine. Nothing that's all else. you need. That, that, I mean, you're that, already well, you're all set. And, gu- and Guitar Hero. I was pretty okay at Guitar Hero. Saxophone and Guitar Hero. That's a great dude. <laughs> uh, Anitra is a singer and you played trombone. I did a little bit of trombone, a little bit oh, of Oh, wonderful. Oh, the um, perfect so. instrument. Trombone. One of my favorite instruments. Our daughter, however, so she got... I don't, where did she? She didn't get started with violin. I get, she, she got started with piano. She got started. She got started with piano. Good which, starting point. Which Andrew's mom was teaching her, and then at one point she was like, "Can I just bring the piano book home?" And she worked her way through the entire rest of oh, the you know, boy. beginner okay. piano okay. book, and then was like, "Can I have a new book?" Yeah, um, and worked her way through that for a little bit, and then it kind of calmed down. And then she had the opportunity to start learning violin at school, and we're like, oh, "Okay, nice. sure, it's at school. That brings the cost way down. Sure, fine." And then fifth grade came along when they get an opportunity to do band instruments. She's like, I want to do band too. I'm like, okay, well, we have all these instruments. No, I want to play drums. Yeah, all right, all right. I'll still right. understand that. Yeah, choice. okay. <laughs> um, and so now we've got this kid who plays piano passably well, completely self-taught at this en- point. Entirely self-taught. She nice. can play like... She plays a lot of the music from Wind Waker, actually. Is, oh, man. Oh, um, and you'll it's be, great. That's you'll be thing. happy to know what uh, next week's episode is going to be about. Oh! Maybe you can guess what next week's episode I is going to be about. I am so excited. <laughs> you just made my night. <laughs> I'm in the middle of making it. I have this, I'm oh, in such a good mood because excellent. I spent all day today talking about Zelda music. She is going to jump up and down when we tell her. Man, Wind um, Waker. Oof, hard but to like, top. completely self-taught on piano. That's She's so cool. playing violin. She does play, you know, traditional like marching band drum kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. being the kid who can read music well she's also the one you know in the percussion section doing all the bells and xylophone and vibraphone and all that she asked for and we bought her ukulele so she she has a a very wide she's basically at the point as long as it doesn't involve her mouth in any way shape or form she will play Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. instrument nice that's a that's a great mix of things though if you can learn all of those you can be a be a one-person band 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So all that comes together to inform her question for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Which, which is, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of playing so many different instruments? And how many instruments do you play? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I'll answer the second one first because that's short. How many instruments do I play? I Actually, I couldn't count them because it, you start to cheat really quickly because it's like, well, I play piano. Does that also mean I play synthesizer? And if I play synthesizer, does that mean that I play, you know, this synthesizer and that synthesizer? Do they each count as one? So I don't know. It's it's like 10 or something, 15. I play most of the woodwinds, so sax, flute, clarinet, drums, bass, guitar, I can sing okay. I can play piano okay. And then it starts to get into like, I play shaker. I play a mean triangle. Like, let's just get the number racked up. So, so somewhere in the in the 10 and then all the other stuff. Um, zone. A baker's dozen, we'll call it. <laughs> so the that's a really good question. I've thought about this a lot as someone who took piano lessons as a kid, was really excited about music, didn't have a great piano teacher, so I didn't really, like, take to her style. But then I found myself just learning stuff on my own and, like, sitting at the piano and just hammering things out because I was really into it and really into the the sound of it and just the beauty of music. So, but then I didn't really, like, learn to be a great piano player. So then I got really into saxophone, learned saxophone. Then I went to school and, like, you know, really studied saxophone and got very proficient on the saxophone and flute and clarinet. And we also had to learn piano. And I'm sitting there and I've learned a lot of jazz piano and I can kind of play some stuff. But I wish that I could play piano like a real piano player or like some of the people I went to school with who were sax majors or whatever, but they could just really play piano because they'd actually learned when they were kids. (laughs) And I've always had this feeling of, I mean, yeah, just a feeling of envy of like, man, if I could do that, I could be I could produce so much more music. It'd be so much easier to compose just because I could just sit here and like nail stuff out. If I could sight read complicated scores, God, it would like make my life so much easier. But then I think about how well I started on saxophone and that's a single note instrument. And I learned all of these ways to like get creative with an instrument that can only do this one thing, you know? Basically it sings. It just sings in saxophone language. And um <laughs> and I learned like how to how to improvise melodies. And I, I think developed a sense of melody that only really developed the way that it did because I was playing this instrument that was limited in this certain way. And that really informed my musical identity. And then that's informed the way that I write on piano or on guitar or play other things. So it was like basically a path from one instrument to many instruments where the many instruments are very influenced by the one instrument. So that's kind of only tangentially related to the question of like, what is the benefit of learning all of these instruments? But it does, I think, speak to the value of not over-specializing and playing a lot of different things. But I think it also speaks to what you're giving up. Because if you only play one instrument and you really take it seriously, and especially if that one instrument is piano, or, you know, I guess guitar kind of too in the like modern landscape, you know, but really if you're going to like get amazing at piano, you'll be a very versatile musician as an adult, like once you've really gotten there. And that'll just be really useful in a lot of ways. But if you learn to just kind of be pretty good at a whole lot of different instruments, you'll just ha- your musical personality, like your musical self will just be very, very different and maybe more distinctive in some ways. You know, it'll I guess it'll be you no matter what. It's just a matter of how you want your musical personality to come out. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think the advantages are you get to play a whole bunch of different things. It's really fun to record one-man band stuff or to write an arrangement for yourself. It's a great thing to be writing music and to sit in the studio and to think, well, what would this sound like if I played it on ukulele? Okay, well, what would this sound like if I doubled out on melodica? 
okay, well, these chords sound okay on piano, but what if I played them on saxophone? And then to just immediately go and like make that real and hear it because you play the instruments. So that's cool, but no one's going to hire me to come play piano for them, right? Like I'm not going to get any gigs as like a lead guitar player in a rock band. So you know, I'm, I'm versatile in a way, but it's I'm not super specialized. The saxophone is the only thing I'm really specialized on. So it's kind of a trade-off, and um, there's, there's sort of pros and cons to both. I can see that. That is the best non-answer I have ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, is it, is it, am I supposed to be clearly recommending one or the other? I, I no, can't I don't know. Really so. only. I, oh, I, no, I, yeah. I think it was good. I, I'm going to say, since this wasn't my question, I'm going to give a short answer of my own, which is, yeah. as someone who is primarily a singer and then later on took up piano and, and trombone, each additional instrument I took up, even though I'm not particularly good at any of them, helped with all of the others, like improved my sight reading, improved my breath control, improved, you know, my sense of rhythm. And so each instrument that I've added, and I've tried a little bit of guitar and stuff too, has changed the way I think about all of the other things that I already can play. That is very well put. I think that's an advantage when you're trying to be a more well-rounded musician. That's super well put. And I've I've found the same thing. Let me ask you a question. You started as a singer. When you started playing instruments that were outside of yourself, what was that like? Like, what was the experience like of sort of seeing, oh, I just press a button on this thing or I move to this (laughs) position rather than having to visualize your, you know, vocal apparatus and your resonance and all of that? So it was incredibly frustrating because I was, (laughs) I mean, I would say that I I was a singer at the age of like seven or eight and then I started (laughs) playing piano. And so for me, singing was as natural as speaking or breathing. And I was getting some training early on to make sure that I sang in a way that wouldn't hurt my voice and Mm -hmm. um, I would have stamina for. Very sort of European boy choir style. Sure, sure. And then I started to get serious about piano and I was like this is so much harder I have to think about where every <laughs> finger's going and mm-hmm. and I can't just kind of slide from one note into the other if I didn't quite hit it right I have to reset and try again so I would not recommend uh starting as a singer <laughs> yeah I got that I- I remember talking to singers in school and hearing that kind of frustration, even though it's frustrating going the other way as well, because I didn't really learn how to sing when I was younger and learned all these instruments. And now I really approach singing the same way that I approach playing instruments, which I think can be problematic. Like that can cause me to get hung up on like overly, like over intellectualizing my technique when I really should just like relax and sing. Yeah. But um, it is really interesting to hear that perspective. Cool, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just, we'll Sorry, be over here man. doing a singing slash instrumentalist podcast. No, I just feel like I'm listening to an episode of the show, like a college episode <laughs> of the show. It's, All right. We do have one more question from our daughter. Yes. Okay. Even though I'm fairly sure I already know the answer to this. But she asks, what is your favorite instrument or group of instruments and why? My favorite instrument is the saxophone. I'm um, shocked. So shocked. <laughs> it has to be. Even though... Gosh, I mean, I really love playing guitar these days, and I really love playing the drums. So they're, the guitar and the drums are very close to the saxophone for me. But no, it'll always be the saxophone, and that's because, well, I mean, I know so much about it. I studied it so much. I'm so intimately familiar with so many of the great musicians. And I mean, John Coltrane, Stan Getz, Sonny Rollins, some of these musicians, they're just like the people that I grew up listening to. They're my heroes. I've transcribed and studied and gotten inside of their playing so much. I've spent so much time emulating them and learning how to do what they do that I just have this different relationship with the instrument than any other instrument. And then when I play it, it feels like 
I'm able to express myself so easily on the saxophone, which I think if I hadn't specialized in any instrument and didn't have any instrument where I had that feeling of just, I can just pick it up and play. I think that would actually be a frustrating feeling. And I'm really grateful that I have this this instrument that I've mastered. And so it'll always just have this really special place in my heart. It's my truest musical voice is when I'm playing the tenor saxophone, no matter how many other instruments I, I learn. I love it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it wouldn't be the Family Gamers podcast if we didn't at least bring up board games a yeah. little bit. So we saved it almost until the end. Do you play board games or is it mostly video games? We talked about video games and you know stuff like that. But do, do you play board games? And if so... Can you share one board game that you've played and enjoyed recently? Sure. Yes, I do play board games. I actually have a tabletop group. We actually just started a D&D group as well with some of the same people, which is pretty exciting. But um, I have a weekly board game group that I meet with, and uh, we have a great time here in Portland. For a long time, we were meeting at a bar, and we would all you know, have a beer and play a game. But then the pandemic hit, so we've actually been <laughs> playing in Tabletop Simulator uh, okay, which is sure. the, I'm sure you've talked about on your show, but is the, oh, yeah. the video game, well, like more of a just physics simulator that lets you make any any yeah. tabletop game and play it. So we have been playing a game for for like the whole pandemic, for like two years, we've been playing the same campaign in a game called Gloomhaven, ah. which um, I don't know how familiar the two of you are with this. Oh, yeah. talking about this on the show. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, Gloomhaven is not really a family game. So <laughs> it could be. <laughs> I mean, it could be, but it depends it's not... on your family and how yeah, you yeah. feel about right. them, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. True. Um, but yeah, it's classic. I mean, it's a classic guided dungeon crawl pretty much. Yeah, that is what it is. It's been really cool. We've been playing it in Tabletop Simulator, and that actually makes it possible for us to play it because it's a really chewy, really complicated mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've played plenty of board games that are just straightforward board games. Play them in a night, have a good time, and you're done. Or even a game like Pandemic Legacy. Had a great time playing that with another couple. And that's more complicated, but pretty simple. I mean, Gloomhaven probably take, I don't know how long it would take to set this thing up. I we own a imagine. physical copy of it, but it would take like 45 minutes or an hour right. yeah, just because right, there's yeah, yeah. so much stuff like just the cards and all the stuff you have to organize um we're in tabletop simulator you press a button and it's just like <laughs> yep. and it sets the whole thing up for you and it, it runs initiative every round it like gives you an initiative tracker there's this this guy made a, a mod for it basically that lets you play the game so that's been amazing and we can all just log on every monday night and just continue right where we left off without having to great. set up or tear down and that game yeah. is cool it's it's kind of like the parts of Dungeons and Dragons that I don't like in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so it's all the combat and the sort of, uh-huh. you know, really getting like min maxi and, and figuring out all the strategy. And um, we're playing with one too many people. So you have to adjust the difficulty that makes it really hard. And we have to absolutely brutally like min max every scenario that we're in in order to win. And that's fun. I'm playing with a couple of sort of engineers, very engineer yes. brain kind of guys who are really good at being like, well, uh, no, actually this move, we should use this element here and move over here because that'll do more damage, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, I like it in this game. I find it very calming, even though, you know, ordinarily in d and I actually really like the role playing part and the like, you know, just having fun and goofing around and, you know, trying to fool people and, and pull off heists and those kinds of things, which there's a little bit of in Gloomhaven, but it's more of just a spice. Most of the game is like hardcore tactical combat, but I, I have been really enjoying it. And the persistent part of it is really fun too, that we kind of level up each week. Well, if you ever go back to meeting in person, there is a <clears throat> slightly lighter version of Gloomhaven called Jaws of the Lion. It's called Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. You can actually pick oh, okay. it up at Target for like 60 bucks. Nice. So if you ever want to do it in person, 
that might be a little bit more accommodating right, without than a dealing with a pound box that you have. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, it's either one. that or just like go to someone's house and they have a table where they can leave it set up, you know, yeah, each week. Exactly, exactly. For the rest of time. Yep. Right. For, I mean, listen, seriously, for the rest of time. We play yeah. a few hours a week and it's been like two years and we're still on yeah. the same campaign. <laughs> I mean, when there's a company that can sell an insert for the box that costs $80 and the selling point is it will only take you 10 minutes to set up the game. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they've gone a little extreme, but yeah, uh, I'm excited for the new one too. He's got a new one coming out, right? Yeah, Frost I- Isaac Haven. Childress is that his name? Yeah, it's, yeah. it sounds like it's going to be really good. Yep. All right. Well, <clears throat> why don't we bring it home? We're going to wrap right. it up with one last question, which is okay. music related. Don't worry. And this is kind of something that you've you've answered on Strong Songs, but uh, for our listeners, what is one thing that everyone should know about making or listening to music? Uh, one thing that everyone should know about listening to music is that or, a or lot. Making music. I would say we'll, we'll go with we'll go with listening to music, but this is also about making music. One thing that everyone should bear in mind about music is that a lot more thought went into songs that you may think sound very simple or like they were just thrown together than you probably think. And it may well be that you know the legend is true that the person wrote this entire song in 15 minutes on a napkin and they just jotted the lyrics down and they were done. Even then, a lot of work went into making the song. That's not even counting, you know, all of the work practicing guitar and songwriting that led up to that 15 minute moment, but just <laughs> there's so much work, so much production work, so much work in the studio, mixing, writing, arranging, the musicians working together. Every single piece of music is like the result of a lot of care and a lot of work. And I think there's so much music in the world. We're always hearing music. It's always all around us. It's just everywhere you go that it can kind of just be like, yeah, well, whatever. There's just kind of songs on. It can even be annoying, right? Like a lot of music is annoying. You don't even want to hear it. You crave silence at times in your life. And that I think can get to the point where you can stop appreciating music for like the miracle that it is as cheesy as that sounds but like any great song the fact that it even exists that it was recorded is is pretty miraculous and so i don't know i would i would i guess urge people to just keep that in mind and try to find that state when listening to a piece of music or a song even a song they've heard a million times and just stop and really think about it and think like someone really made this this took a lot of work this was a huge thing that someone put a lot into and it'll i think kind of open it up and maybe maybe give you a new appreciation for it I think that's great advice. I, I kind of felt that way listening to you talk about Blackbird. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Because it's such Blackbird. a simple, simple, simple song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's just uh, that and the, the whole Eleanor Rigby thing. Yeah, man. that the, All that Beatles stuff is that way. Beatles, yes. That kind of music where you've heard it a million times. And like Blackbird is one where you write. It's just Paul playing guitar. And you're like, all right, like this is a pretty simple song. But then you really sit down with it and it's like, this is an amazing, amazing composition. This is such a a, like masterpiece. And uh, and yeah, it kind of just takes that extra focus. Well, I mean, we listen every week to the show, to Strong Songs. Every two weeks. Every two weeks. I'm sorry. Every two weeks. (laughs) And um, now I'm I'm chomping at the bit for the Zelda songs. Uh, But um, this conversation just makes me want to listen to more. That's great. And I hope hope that people are listening to our show and and hearing this conversation. And they're thinking, where do I go to hear about this stuff? Where do I go to listen to the show? So, Kirk, where can people go to find Strong Songs? Where do they subscribe? All the things. Where do people find you on the internet? 
They can find Strong Songs just about anywhere. I mean, strongsongspodcast.com is the website, but it's very easy to find in any podcast app. Um, I have no exclusivity deals or anything like that. <laughs> and it's also on Patreon if you want to support it. But um, but it isn't like you have to go there to get all the episodes or anything like that. I do little bonuses, but that's it for the Patreon. So it's really just sign up, download it, and listen to it. And I'm not as on like social media as I used to be. I mean, I have a Twitter account, and I'm... You know, I'm on Instagram or I guess I post a little bit on Instagram, but I don't use Twitter anymore just because like, man, 10 years in the trenches writing about video games is enough to make anybody <laughs> not want to be on Twitter anymore. <laughs> they don't have to be. Um, so I'm not really there Fair anymore, enough. though. KirkHamilton.com is my website. And I suppose there's links there to all sorts of stuff. People want to find uh, more of my work. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Andrew, where can you find the Family Gamers online? Well, we haven't been burned out on Twitter yet. Yet. Uh, <laughs> That's good. We'll good there. for you. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. But um, So we're on all of the social media at Family Gamers AA. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. On YouTube, you can find us at The Family Gamers. And, of uh, course... We're old and TikTok is hard, but we try. Yes, we try very hard. We try very hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. You, you can join the Family Gamers community. This is the best place to go and talk about board gaming as a family. We're answering some questions about family-weight RPGs yeah. in the community just this evening. Nice. We did not recommend Gloomhaven. Sorry. <laughs> Perfectly <laughs> <But> understandable. <laughs> you can get there. The easiest way is to go to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community, or you just go to Facebook and search for search. the Family Gamers yeah. community. You can also email us. You can, Andrew at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. You can check out our merchandise. Uh, yes. Family gamers, play games with your kids. A balanced life is... Uh, balanced fun balanced is a fun. controller in one hand and, and a meeple, meeple in, the in the other hand. <laughs> That's good. I should go get some merch. <laughs> you should go over to thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch to find that. That's great. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you like what you're hearing. Tell your friends about it and about Strong Songs. Yes. And leave us sure. a review. Apple Podcast or wherever it is you subscribe. All the places, Amazon Music, Stitcher, yep. Spotify, yep. TuneIn. Family Gamers and Strong Songs. All Alphabetically, they should be fairly close to each other. <laughs> so you can get them both and you'll be good to go. Yes, because we're filed under T. Yes. <laughs> right. Got it, got it. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. Well, I think that's going to be it for us this week. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kirk. It has been, this has been so much fun. It has it's been, been a been joy amazing. to talk to you. It's been wonderful. It was my pleasure. I love what you're doing. I love the whole idea behind this show and love board games. So this, is, this has right. been a real awesome. pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, this has just been a joy. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. So I'm glad we could make this thing happen. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to be it for us this week. All right. So until next week. Play, play games, games with, with your, your kids. kids.